I'm serious with my work and I'm obsessive perfectionist, but I think our way of doing things was more playful and there was lots of friendship involved. And I guess there was a certain warmth that was perceived. Actually, you know, the, the most beautiful thing for me of this exhibition was realizing how many great friends I had through my work, you know, how many nice moments we shared and that I'm, I'm really happy about. I am Susie Menkes and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. For this episode, I'm speaking to Sibylla Sorondo, a designer who is famous in Spain, beloved in Japan, but has recently been embracing the importance of sustainability rather than fashion. I have just travelled to Madrid to see Sibylla and also to visit The Invisible Thread, an exhibition dedicated to her collections. Curated by Laura Chorato Mera, the show presents exceptional and original work. As a long-time admirer of Sibylla, I realised that I had to understand her aesthetic from her early experience of La Mobida. Born out of the death in 1975 of Franco and his dictatorship, the movement, mainly in the Spanish capital Madrid, was propelled by a desire for a post-Franco identity that included a powerful cultural wave from punk rock to graffiti and with vivid colours, gender fluidity and self-expression. By 1980, creatives were able to express themselves and have an open approach, and one such person was Sibylla. I sat down with Sibylla to listen to her story and how she rose to international fame. Running away at age 16 and finding herself in the Yves Saint Laurent Ateliers in France at 17 and owning her own business by 19, Sibylla led the fashion way of the time, as Yoji Yamamoto and Comme des Garçons, an important moment for the international fashion scene. But unlike her contemporaries, Sibylla took a break from the catwalks just before the millennium and moved to Mallorca to concentrate on sustainability before making a comeback a decade later. The podcast was recorded on a very lively evening in the centre of Madrid, where Sibylla showed me her wedding dress line. You may hear some noises from outside her studio, but let's hear rather from the rare talent of Sibylla herself. Sibylla, it's a long time since we've seen each other. It's a real joy for me. But more than anything else, I've been looking at this extraordinary exhibition, Sibylla, that it shows really the essence of your work. How do you feel when you look at your life's work in fashion? Well, it's been quite surprising for me also to look back. because I, I've always tended to look what I was doing in the moment. And since Laura, the, the curator of the exhibition, she was obsessed in, in trying to figure out what was the thread that made my clothes recognizable, even if they were very different? It was it was interesting. I, I really saw very much the the relationship between my work and 
and the emotions. So at first glance, you are Spanish through and through. That's what I think of you. But in fact, you were born in New York to an Argentinian diplomat father and a Polish mother who's an artist. And she sketched both patterns in New York. And your maternal grandfather was a Polish revolutionary. What a mix in your family. <laughs> So tell me, when you arrived in Spain, aged four, what was it like for you? Do you remember seeing the colours and the heat and the sun and Spanish ways of doing things with siestas and late nights? Do you think it had an impact on you right from the start? Yeah, well, I remember it quite well. Because really, I started coming in the summers when I was four years old, but we didn't move to Spain until I was seven. So I have very clearly those memories of the summers, the difference between being in New York in a kindergarten that was in a skyscraper and looking back down and then arriving in Spain in a little village and running in the streets and the lemon trees and and the animals, the donkeys. I remember very well the, the contrast between the feeling in New York and the village where my friends didn't have any toys and me being a spoiled New York girl with many toys and seeing friends that had a very simple life that impressed me. Do you see memories of your life and your work in this exhibition? Because it is very impressive. Impressive that one person could have had so many different ideas and yet at the same time be producing really a, a collection that I could always understand that belonged to you. Is that how you felt about it? I don't think I reflected very much around it. I just produced things, then tried to make something that made sense to present it. And I was following different internal desires, like really not, not knowing what I'm doing until I see it finished and then I recognize it. Also, it was a different time, I feel. No, when you see the collections in the fashion show, don't they seem like really big collections? And when you see the fashion shows, they used to clap every dress. That was interesting. So. It was very much about research and telling stories. I must say I could have found very many reasons for clapping. When I walk around the exhibition today, I mean, the work you've done and the way you present things, all so different, it's extraordinary. I also realise that you've pointed out in the exhibition how there are many different things referenced to your fashion life that I didn't possibly know about, but I can see how much it changed. And I'd love to start by talking about the 1980s, when you started your career, you moved to Paris, which was absolutely the place to be, and you actually worked as an apprentice at Yves Saint Laurent as a cutter and seamstress. It's pretty amazing entry into fashion because this was the time when Yves Saint Laurent was the king of high fashion. How do you remember it all now? You said it in a very glamorous way. It was not that glamorous at all. You know, I came in by chance and I was the the last little monkey in a couture atelier <laughs> where I was lucky enough that all the seamstresses, or most of them, were Spanish. So they were kind of nice to me. And I learned a little bit of different things. I never had any big responsibility, but I was able to see things from the shadow. And uh, I can't say I had any contact with Yves Saint Laurent, but just seeing him pass sometimes like a shadow. And Marie Munoz, that was his right hand and a very, very important person in Maison Saint Laurent. And I think that more and more her importance of Anne-Marie is being recognized. You know, she was really the column in Yves Saint Laurent. And I learned a lot from her. She was very much a, an influence in me. 
I've got a great um, quote of you here from um, talking about living and working in Paris. And you called it, I've got these words, snobbish, cold, and professional. And that was your attitude to French fashion. And you also said, Paris scares me. Fashion's too serious. In Spain, you can still play. Is this the essence of your success? Playing and not being too serious? Or behind it all, do you care so much about your work that you are serious? Well, I guess I'm serious with my work and I'm obsessive perfectionist. But I think our way of doing things, especially compared with Paris, was more playful. And there was lots of friendship involved. And I guess there was a certain warmth that was perceived. Actually, you know, the, the most beautiful thing for me of this exhibition was realizing how many great friends I had through my work. You know, how many nice moments we shared. And that I'm, I'm really happy about. Well, it's great to hear that. And it's also great that the um, exhibition was really so important because it gets the sense of your work as an architect, painting, sculpture. So is transforming important when you're designing? Yes, I tend to play with things. I think that comes from my time when I used to dress with things that I found in thrift markets that I always tried. You know, can you put it the other way around? Can you, what happens if you do a knot here? If you... So I always try to do pieces that you can wear in many different ways. Even though you never studied fashion, you went back to Madrid in 1981 to make made-to-measure clothes for friends. And I think this was done in the basement of your father's house. So it was really early work for you. Um, but being part of Madrid's 1980s Movada movement, you came back to follow the creative revolution. Did you really feel a sense of wanting to be a creative and take part in this? Yes, Madrid was kind of in a, in a bubbling moment. Uh, lots of things were happening, or at least that's how I felt it at the time. And I was in love with someone that lived here, and there were great parties, and everything seemed like new and exciting. And Paris felt, to me at the time, much more cold and and snobbish. And, and yes, I came back. And it wasn't that I wanted to do couture for my friends. I just, I wanted to know the people that would wear the clothes. And it was a more improvised things, you know. I, I would go to look for old fabrics in old stores, in the basement of old stores, and I would do what I could with the seamstressers. And, and there was a lot of people of the artistic movement at the time that would come and ask for clothes. I know that you started really understanding how you wanted to work at that stage, but there was a time before that you don't talk about so much. Before you started your Spanish-based label, you went to New York, and um, I found some marvellous comments there, and I discovered that you were known as the Countess Sibylla of Saks Fifth Avenue. Is it true? No, that's not like that. That's my mother. My mother was a designer in New York, and she seems that she did a line. She worked in Saks Fifth Avenue for a moment. She worked in also in Saconi, that was a 7th Avenue company that did sportswear. So she was a designer there. When she arrived in New York from Egypt, she worked with Alexander Lieberman in Vogue, doing the part of Vogue patterns. And then I think she worked in different places and then in 7th Avenue. And she did this project for Saks at one time. But I don't really know much of my mother's career in fashion. She left fashion in New York when I was seven to move to Madrid and she never worked in fashion again. She started painting again. What amazes me about your career 
is how early you started. You know, people say today that um, designers are coming from school and starting in fashion, and that's actually not really true of today. But you launched your own brand in Madrid, and your earliest show was 1983. Okay, fine, but you were only 19. How did it feel? I mean, you went on to show in Tokyo, in Paris, in Milan, in New York. Did you feel this sort of mad thing that you were climbing, doing different things, and becoming famous? Or did it just happen gently and work out? No, in a way it happened, it happened a little bit too fast, you know, because when I was 24, it was big. And I was not even sure I wanted to be a fashion designer or, or a yoga teacher. I had a huge... <laughs> You know, but I, I had already a great team and, uh, you know, Jibo, like a wonderful industry supporting me, but I, I, it was a little bit scary. But on the other hand, I also started young because I didn't study. So I had, you know, instead of studying, I just started doing. You know, I had my fashion studies were that there was always a seamstress or home. So I think since I'm 10 years old, I've always kind of asked to do things for me. I think my first model was a blue jean skirt with hippie patches on it, like when I was 10. And then that I've always been a, a second-hand addict, even when there was no, that was not in fashion. But in Madrid, you could see these this markets with huge piles of clothes. So I always went there. And I think that's how I learned about fashion, about fabrics, about cuts, just looking at these clothes and then transforming them. Um, when I look for some of the things you've said in the past, I realized that you made a really great statement when you said, when a woman walks, the clothes should follow her, not the other way round. Yet some of your designs I've been looking at today are quite dramatic. How do you keep them wearable? How can the clothes follow your women and at the same time really display an extraordinary effort of design and work? I can do something that is very complex or complicated or extravagant, but then wearing it and getting other people to wear it, I try to make it useful, possible and wearable, and playing around with it and, and having different women trying it on. So that's something I do very much. I remember you talking about fabric sculptures when you described your clothes, but at the same time you wanted the designs, you've always said to me that you want your designs to be practical and comfortable. Um, you once said that you wanted to create carved clothes. And what did that mean, I asked myself. They were sort of sculptural pieces, if I understood it correctly. They looked three-dimensional, but they were made with cloth. It's very difficult for somebody who is not technical in terms of fashion to understand. Can you explain it to me? Well, fabric is, is a wonderful material. You can do so many things with it. So sometimes what I try to do, when I'm really, what I'm really trying to do is the little sketches that I do when I speak on the phone or whatever, try to make them come true. Sometimes I do it with pieces of color, but very often I try to do it creating a, a three-dimensional effect with different techniques. So yes, it's like carving the fabric, but that sounds pretentious. It's just like trying to bring, bring out different effects. Something I'd love to know from your own lips is, I feel that the situation you were in at that stage has to be taken into account because as a child in Spain at the end of Franco's dictatorship rule in the early 1970s, could this have influenced you at all with the direction you took in your life? Because the situation in Spain was just so extraordinary and exceptional and really like nothing else that was happening in the world. Well, Spain was very kind of dark and grey in a certain way also. 
during those years. That was the feeling I was having. I was very involved in the political movement being a teenager, because that that was what was happening just after Franco died. And then there was this explosion of liberty and creativity. You know, I always say I don't know if that was because I was a teenager and the city was like a teenager at the same time, because it had to do very much with Madrid. And everything seemed possible at that time. And it was also very much about, it, it's called La Movida because people moved. Everything happened at night, you know, and, and people would come and say, Madrid, no one sleeps, and there's all these parties and these uh, events going on. So I was super, super shy. And clothes could be like a flag, you know, it was a good way, you know, you would go to some place and you would see the person there that you may want to meet, you know, that was the social media of the time, you know, going out to a place and spotting on each other. And every night was different and there was all kind of incredible things going on. And, and clothing was the la language and I was very bad at speaking, but I was kind of good at speaking the clothing language. So I would create things. I started, actually, my first business was I used to do shirts that my boyfriend would wear and we would go to the bars and when someone would come and say what a nice shirt i would take out a catalog of fabrics and i would <laughs> sell them and then we would go in our motorbike to a seamstress that would sew them and deliver them at night so i, I was a shirt dealer at night that was that was our first business spain has produced over the years some extraordinary clothing and over many generations but you know i have to say something here that of course, we think of Fortuny and Balenciaga and now Nueve, but in the fashion world, Spain has never reached the level of Italy, which is in the news the whole time. Why is that? I can't understand it because it's a country, there's such class, there's such intelligence, there's so many beautiful things to see in museums. Why has it never reached in fashion the height that I think it should have done? I guess it has to do with, with industry and also I think the support that business adventures could have here in Spain. I guess I was quite lucky. I went to Italy and I started in Spain, but very fast I went to Italy where Gibo started to produce me. And I was never ever again able to find someone to produce me here in Spain. I tried to produce myself and there I realized, you know, how how difficult it is here, because really there isn't a system that supports that kind of adventures. Surely one of your great strengths as a designer is the way that the clothes are made. You care about it so much. And the finesse of your clothes I've been looking at today is really quite extraordinary. I'd like to ask you really just how things are made like this. They look so delicate. There's a lot of work inside them, but at the same time, they're very strong. They're for strong women. How can you get all that together? The way I work, you know, I c it can take me years to do a piece uh, until I feel it's finished. Some things are born fast, some things take years. But sometimes I start doing something that is very practical and wearable and that I, or flattering, something that I, that I would like to have. And on the other hand, I'm working like in a complicated volume, something that has some impossible curve that it's a very difficult pattern and they keep on evolving and sometimes at one point those two pieces kind of become one and those usually are the best pieces one starts from a technical research or an artistic idea that i want to do but that is very extravagant and the other side starts with something very wearable and comfortable i'm thinking as you speak 
about your final show, which featured jugglers and acrobats and an orchestra. Um, I can't remember what year it was in France. Um, it was in Paris, I know that much. And um, you also had tightrope walkers above the guests. It all seems so creative and, and extraordinary. Is that something that sticks in your mind? I like to have fun and celebrate. And actually, you know, that was the first event that Alex de Betac ever did. You know, Alex discovered me when he was 17 in the middle of La Movida, and he appeared in our atelier. He used to be sitting there on a the table just looking around, and everybody asked, Who, who's, this, who's this guy that is here? You know, very young. And he took some of my clothes when he was 17 to Paris, and he was the first one that presented me to press. From his bedroom in his mother's house, he became my press agent. And then he worked with me for many years there in Paris. That party was the first event he did like an event, and it was lots of fun. And he managed to help me make come true what I, what I really wanted to do. Actually, what was happening, I was opening a store in Paris. There was this serious, snobbish, whatever, fashion world, and I wanted people to relax. So we did the opening of the store. It was a big store, so we did like a Spanish street fair with all kinds of games that people could win prizes and all kinds of surprises. So after a while, really, people started really relaxing and really wanting to have the prize and really playing the games. And then different surprises happen. So I think we've, we've done many nice parties where people have gotten together and celebrated. Well, it wasn't quite a party today when I was looking at the exhibition. Um, but it was interesting in one way because You've had such a success in Japan, and there were so many Japanese coming to see your work in this exhibition. And, I mean, you really are still involved, aren't you, with Japan? And I think you've got a sister line there for the younger generation. And um, I, I'm right, aren't I, in thinking that it's very much still part of your life? Uh, yes, but much less than it used to be, because now that company was bought by an investment fund. So now they're trying to restart a relationship as it used to be. But Japan has been a very important part of my work, especially in the years I was, I retired from European fashion, and I really decided to concentrate myself on Japan. And Japan was like the most competitive market in the world where everybody was selling and presenting. And for me, it was like the fashion gym. It was really interesting. I feel I, I learned a lot working with them for many years. I want to go on here to the fact that after 20 frantic years, you decided to calm down and stop selling your original brand and you moved to Mallorca to concentrate on your passion for agriculture and sustainable products, which are still so much part of your world. While you were there, you created the Fabrics for Freedom Foundation. Um, can you tell me about that? Well, that, that was a project that started with Vandana Shiva, that she's an Indian activist that I admire very much. Uh, one of the things that we created in Mallorca was a school and also an event that happened every year that was called Soul, Soil and Society, where we brought inspiring people to talk. And Vandana was one of those people. I, on the other hand, I was very interested in finding out about the other side of fashion, like who makes it, where it's made, how can you make it in different materials. At that time, you didn't talk about that. I really tried to create the foundation that I would have liked 
that it would have existed when I was a fashion designer. Someone that would tell me, you know, if you produce here, you can have a positive in impact, you can use these materials, you can do things in a different way. Because I guess if there would be a possibility of creating clothes that create blessings instead of garbage and slavery and all the ugly side of fashion that we also know. When you did an evening wear range for Capucci, um, I think that was in 2002. Capucci is somebody who I've always admired so much. And you obviously felt the same or you wouldn't have done this work. And um, Capucci is so interesting. I, I just talked to Giambattista Valli in my previous podcast and he worked there. And I wondered whether his own experience was the same as yours. What was it like for you to work there for Capucci? Well, it wasn't that I worked for Capucci, but Franco Brucolieri, that was, I don't know someone that you met, but he was someone very important in fashion. He was my commercial agent in Milan. So he had bought the brand and was working with Capucci and doing a Pret-a-Porter line. And I did the evening wear part. So I did meet Capucci and I was in his archives. But it was like a project of Brucolieri, like a very avant-garde, before anyone did this kind of things. But it didn't succeed. They, they went bankrupt very fast. You have two sons. Have they shown any interest in the idea of their mother um, doing fashion? Have they either of them thought of working with you on it, or is that something you don't want to do? <laughs> uh, my older son, he's very talented doing fashion, but he's not interested in it right now. He's a musician. And my younger son, he did a fashion brand, but he, 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 he was a skater. He had a lot of success like a skater. They did movies and he did his fashion brand for skaters. And now he's doing houses. But they're, they're close. And uh, I think this exhibition was also a surprise for them because there's a lot that they didn't know. Uh, so that was, that was nice, seeing them react to it. And it was good organizing the past for that. What about the comeback after a 10-year hiatus? And I think it was in um, 2015, you found some new investors and um, started all over again. Is that how it felt or did it feel very fresh? Did it seem a very different time? Well, it wasn't so easy. You know, people that had bought the brand, actually, they never followed through with what was in their contract. So finally, legally, I managed to get the brand back, but with a big debt that they had created. So I was kind of crazy in assuming that debt. So when we restarted, I needed, I needed an investor to continue to be able to pay the debt and all the employees I was assuming because I was assuming a very big team. I had some small investors that helped me, but I needed a big one. Those were the years. It was, it was very exciting because it was like, on one hand, my clothes were already in museums, and on the other hand, I was kind of working like a young designer, fighting my way through, sleeping in couches and moving collections and presenting them when you came to see my collections. Also, just before that, it seemed that fashion was a good investment, but just in that moment, it wouldn't. they started doubting if fashion was a good investment. So the different deals that were going to happen finally didn't happen, and I went bankrupt and I had to close. So it was like a small adventure that lasted like three, four years. I was very happy with the things I created. I was very happy about how it pushed me out of my comfort zone, because in a way, my first time as a designer, I was very lucky. Everything went, 
not, the word is not smoothly, but I was very recognized, like artistic, creative. That was the time that journalists appreciated and looked for designers and stores. And when I came back the second time, it was a different world, you know, where if you didn't have money and you were small, you had to struggle. And it's a world where Thara was there, where social media was there where the economics of the brand really mattered. So because that at that time, I was the business person behind that. And it also helped me look and understand how the financial scheme of the world works. You know, like I understood that what I was trying to do was not what investment funds were looking for. I was trying to do a valuable brand uh, with people of a certain age and knowledge with high salaries and doing things that were expensive to do, but I didn't want to sell them so extremely expensive. And I realized that really investment funds were really more interested in things that were cheap and they could sell expensive companies that had very little people working on them. Investments where they could get a huge return very fast. It was very interesting for me to learn, yeah, like a different reality in the world. I have a feeling after talking to you quite a lot that you are somebody who is always thinking about other things to do, always having kind of nervous energy to get on with something else. I mean, you've been doing homeware and shoes and you've been doing those ballet costumes. And here we are in this um, studio with all these possibilities of what to wear on a wedding day. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of them here. But what really excites you now? What do you really want to do? What do you love about fashion today? I think it's more a time now of collaborations. It's not so much, I don't know if it's time in the world or it's the way I feel at my age, but I feel it's not so much a time of, of I, but a time of, of we, of working with different people in different projects. You know, I, I have the question also now, do I really want to dedicate my time and my energy to fashion? We're in such a delicate moment, so many things going on in the world. I really enjoy my other work, more related to agriculture and ecology and the school. So is it, you know, does the world really need another dress? But I really enjoy working in teams and and the magic of all of it. And I, and I always draw. So once I make a drawing, I'm, I want to make it come true. And then once I make it, I want to photograph it. And then I want to see someone wearing it. Well, I think that in this um, exhibition of yours that I've been looking at so closely today, that what you have created already is so extraordinary, so much more than I had ever realized. Maybe you have that feeling yourself. When you went up the third floor, then the fourth floor in that extraordinary building, did you suddenly say to yourself, this is me? Is this really everything I've done? There's so much. It's so amazing. It's so wonderful. Did you think that? Well, not so nicely, but yes, I was terrified before the exhibition. All I could feel was shame. It felt like they were dragging me out of the closet to show myself to the world. I, I was worried how ashamed I was to show my work. I was also surprised by that. What really helped me was thinking about the party. That was really great because I had people from my 40 years, all these incredible people that were friends, collaborated, that worked with me and everybody came and that was like so nice. And to tell you the truth, I've only been in the exhibition place once to put the clothes and twice in the opening and I haven't gone back because I, it overwhelms me a little bit. But you know, now museums are coming to buy the pieces and collectors and 
So it's like, okay, these babies of the past, they have to find their place in the world. And now I'm interested in doing fashion because I'm a woman and I love wearing things. But probably what I'll do now is probably very different because fashion for me has to do with the moment you're living. You know, it's, it's very much a dialogue between fabric and the body and the moment we're living. There was a year that I did the airport collection that was about, you know, this when I really understood for the first time coming from Madrid and being in Milan, what this hectic business-like work world was, you know, and traveling and in the office and seeing it was the time of the power woman. And so I made a joke about that. The second part of the job, it was traveling and working were the first two parts of the show. And the other one was resting and celebrating. That was like more the Madrid part. So Which now I guess I want to do more like resort, yoga, vacation wear, pleasure wear, underwear. I'm more interested in developing that pleasure fashion. Well, I think that what you do is always ahead of time. And I think there are many people now who will be more attracted by the idea of things that bring you joy and comfort and ease when it comes to fashion and not the kind of shouting that we've been seeing so much of. Now is not a time to shout. Now is a time to think gently about what one wants to do in the future. And I must say, I feel that you're the ideal person who thinks like that. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, that second time when I came back, in the 10 years before, I had another job. You can say I worked with some very avant-garde ecological projects, creating communities that they needed some high-profile investors. And I worked creating the vision and they made me often go tell the story of the vision of the project to the clients. So that was the first time in my life those years that I lived the experience of you arriving to speak with someone that is going to look at you and judge you by what you are wearing. You know, as a designer, you know, I could wear, you know, the black, all black uniform that, you know, you know, that's my clothes, that's me. And I think that the, the, at least in my time, I think my designer look was black clothes and dirty hair. You know, that was because you were so exhausted that there wasn't time anymore. But during that time, I had that experience of how a woman, when you're working a lot, and now there's lots of women in high-profile professions, and I was really aware how much a piece of clothes can help you, support you, protect you, what it can say something of you, you know, and you just arrive and they're going to look at you and you want to have to be attractive, but you have to look intelligent, but you have to, you've been traveling. So I really lived that in my own skin. And then when I came back to fashion, it was like, I really want to be of service. You know, now there's so many women in important jobs and roles and that are exhausted, that are afraid, that are trying to do things in a different way. I want to do clothes for them. So my second round was very much about that, about how, how may I serve? And then on the other hand, I was trying to make the vision of the foundation come true. I had done the foundation. It was like, now I have to walk my talk. Where do I produce that? I really know the whole loop of the story. I know where the fabric is produced. I know where the, the, the things are, are, the factories are. Can I create clothes that, that generate blessings? Can I, can I do that? Because that was always my question. You know, can human beings be a blessing on earth instead of a pest? That was what I was trying to do with the school, trying the school in Mallorca. I was trying to answer that question, bringing people to think about it. You are an extraordinary woman. 
And I salute you. Thank you. Thank you. Sibylla, to rediscover the essence of your work with a functional and sensual aura was extraordinary, especially as the presentation of the exhibition and the story spanned four decades. To see your effortless and versatile designs on display in such an amazing building was an absolute joy. And I'll leave you with Sibylla's point. Can human beings be a blessing on earth instead of a pest? Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels. Music